We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on SOT Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week is Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. So this week we are going to talk a little bit, at least for a while, about, uh, well, it's almost two weeks ago now that the German wings flight from Barcelona to Dusseldorf crashed into the French Alps. So we are going to talk a little bit about uh, details of that situation and what um, what it might have really happened to that plane and all the people on it, because as you probably guessed by now, we don't believe the official story, and anybody in their right mind should not believe the official story, because it is a tissue of lies. It's crazy. I haven't seen anything like it in reporting of a plane crash since well a year ago, MH370, Malaysian Airlines plane. Yeah, although this is even. Uh, this is kind of even worse because, um, I mean, my impression of the whole thing was that um, that there was a narrative being built. You know, um, I could, I saw. I mean, it, it was just when the first, when the plane first crashed, when I heard about the the plane crash on the news, and it was, oops, the plane crashed, and everybody, all these people died. It was terrible. It was horrific, and. Shocking, but at the same time, given all of the madness that has been going on in the world over the past few years, it it's starting to kind of wear off, especially for people like us, because we're watching all of this stuff ha- stuff happening and looking at it and investigating it and reporting on it, etc. I mean, for me, it goes back at least as far as, uh, well, you could almost say it goes back as far as 9-11 if you want uh, in terms of planes flying into buildings and killing civilians and mass civilian death. Uh, that's kind of, I suppose, when it all started. But uh, since then, there have been several similar episodes, most notably in the past uh, year, actually, because this German Wings flight was the fifth plane full of a commercial plane to crash, killing all of its passengers in the last year. That's five in a year. Um, that's very strange, but the, there was also the um, Air France flight um, in 2009. Oh, Brazil. It was flying from Sao Paulo to uh, back to Paris, and it crashed over the Atlantic. <clears throat> it, you know, so we've been looking at this, these things for a long time, and um, so it's maybe not, at this point, it's not, it's always shocking, but it's not, as shocking as it might be to some people who forget things very quickly. We don't forget things very quickly, as a lot of other people do, because we're watching things all the time and we're making connections between different things. So when we see a plane crash going down, we immediately start thinking about previous plane crashes that, that mm. went down. On this time scale, to put it in a phrase, planes are falling out of the sky. Mm. Like, you can almost, I mean, you joke about it, 
Because, like, oh, it's happening again. Yeah. What was the cause this time? So, well, apart from the relative lack of shock over over this incident, um, within the first few days, I started to get a really uneasy feeling about the whole situation, about the way it was being reported, and about the narrative, the story that was being told, because it really, it was palpable to me anyway, the sense that they were creating a narrative uh, as they went along. Of course, they were justifying it by saying, you know, cockpit voice recording, saying this out of the other, but uh, just the way they were going about it, the deliberate way they were going about it to create the narrative of a suicide pilot really, uh, it seemed extremely disingenuous and extremely, to be honest, just extremely false, the way that they were going about it in a very deliberate matter, manner. It was almost as if someone had the plan uh, or had the story set in advance and um, these uh, investigators and whoever else were going around collecting data to support a preformed uh, belief or a preformed story. That's the really this the, the feeling of the whole thing was for me was very strongly of that. That's right. And when you started looking at it, you saw that the very first suggestion that this scenario happened um, goes to the first day. Within a day, the New York Times. Well, absolutely, it was cites someone. Yeah, it was. He was a a high level or an unnamed French military uh, official. Uh, that was involved in the investigation was the way he was described. And this was on, now this came out in the New York Times on the very morning after. So it was, I think that the time on the, the New York Times article was early morning, maybe 5 a.m. or something like that. And then it was spread around very quickly to the other other media outlets, which is the way the media does these kind of things. One one source develops a story, puts it out there, and then it's pooled around to everybody else. And that's why you see so many uh, repeating stories are, are stories that are only slight variations of each other all across the media and all saying the same thing. Talk about complete lack of real investigative journalism. These people are just repeating a party line effectively and it started this time with the New York Times and at about 5 o'clock on the morning after the crash. So this is less than 24 hours after the crash. So for them to get that out to print at 5 a.m. on the day after the German wings crash... Uh, obviously, they had to be working on the story previous to that, which suggests that this unnamed French military official involved in the investigation had talked to the New York Times on the day of the crash, the day before, perhaps the evening of the crash. And this is where uh, the first uh, idea, the first mention of uh, Andreas Lubitz, the co-pilot, having crashed the plane uh, this guy said that from the cockpit voice recordings, you could tell that one of them was locked out and that when it crashed, only one of them was in the... I mean, he all but said this guy crashed the plane. I mean, it was the obvious conclusion yeah. from what he told the New York Times that it was a suicide pilot. He did it on purpose. So that's amazing to me that this guy would have... It's, it's such a breach of regulations for someone like that, whoever it is, <clears throat> to go and seed that information to to the media and have them disseminated it smacks completely off um, a deliberate attempt mm -hmm. attempt to to establish a narrative uh, within a few hours of the crash without anybody possibly being able to know what really happened except on the basis of 
I suppose, a cockpit voice recording. And you don't need to be a crash investigator or seasoned investigator of any kind to ask yourself how they could have found the, the this black box, the, the cockpit voice recorder or data recorder, found it and analyzed it and deduced from it what this guy, well, yeah. anonymous French military official, deduced from it well, and then given the press in, yeah, in the space of a day. Complete, it was a complete farce, really. I mean, it was just a farce. It made a farce of the investigation, obviously, to establish that concept or that idea uh, at the very beginning to say more or less they knew what had happened. In embryo, they said, this guy said, he didn't say he crashed the plane deliberately, but he said, what we know is that when the plane crashed, one of them, only one pilot was in the cockpit and the other one had been locked out. That's what he said. Um, of course, even allowing for the cockpit voice recording, having uh, recorded what they say it did, which is just, um, you know, this guy's breath, uh, this guy, this French investigator didn't say anything, <clears throat> or this French military official, sorry, he didn't say anything specifically as to what was on the cockpit voice recording other than what they had gleaned from it. So, I mean, to, to conclude that it was a suicide pilot story was, wasn't was even backed up by the actual evidence that he was presenting. You know, the story that he gave the New York Times was extremely short on information. He just said, all we know is that there was only one pilot in the cockpit when the plane crashed. And from that, the New York Times then said, okay, I get you. I know what you're trying to say. So they ran with the suicide pilot story. They said, it seems, therefore, that he deliberately crashed the plane. So they, they knew what they were being told by this guy. You know, the guy said, you know, hint, hint, this is what is going on. So it was completely contrived by the New York Times and this French military official to, to deliberately, and on the basis of nothing really, nothing officially, uh, create a suicide pilot story. And then we mm. saw in the days afterwards them just building this case. I mean, it was, they knew where they were going. Somebody knew clearly where they were going and they were going to find evidence to back up this preformed idea of a suicide pilot without any evidence. Mm. They were going to look for the evidence. So what did they find? Well, they go and search his house and they find a note, a suicide note. Well, not a suicide note. A doctor's note. That yeah. was it. Mm -hmm. And gradually there were other things found at the house that fleshed out the theory or the official narrative that this 27-year-old had decided, right, that's it. I'm through with this. Yeah. Next time we go up, I'm yeah. taking the plane out. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he's, so he's suicidal. I mean, this is all nonsense, right? Because there's no evidence to back it up, really. There's only hearsay and circumstantial evidence that is being used and promoted as as hard evidence when it's not. It's circumstantial evidence. The whole investigation is a complete farce, really. Um, and I mean, from the very beginning, I mean, the way that it was uh, carried on from the beginning, like we've just said, they immediately see the idea of a suicide pilot. That is completely irresponsible. And completely, a complete, uh, you know, a, a, in contravention of normal investigative uh, policies or procedures. I mean, the plane pieces should have been collected. Sure, the cockpit voice recorders collected, but the plane should have been. <clears throat> in other cases, they collect the parts of the plane and reassemble it in a hangar somewhere to try and figure out what happened. It's a long process, and nobody says anything about what the cause was until they've collected all the data. And, on the, uh, and at the same time, you have this French prosecutor, <clears throat> because 
New York Times had seeded the idea and, and, then ran, and the other media then ran with this idea of a suicide pad. It immediately became a criminal investigation. So you have this uh, French prosecutor, Brice Robin, or whatever his name is, uh, who's out there being the spokesman for the investigation. And he, is no, he has no knowledge. He has no history of, of investigation into airplane crashes. He's not an expert. He's simply a criminal prosecutor. If you look at his his uh, bio, he he's not he he never investigated a plane crash in his life. He never even prosecuted a plane crash in his life. Yet he's the one going on TV and telling people what's on the cockpit voice recorder and how to interpret it. It's absolutely ridiculous. It wasn't. They didn't even use an experienced air crash investigator to report on these things. The only people who should have. Uh, been speaking to the media on this because they're experts eff- effectively on it or officially on it is the is the French version of the uh, it's the French version of the NTSB the, the National Transport uh, Safety Board um, which is the body in France uh, mm-hmm. it's the BEA, BEA uh, in France that that um, that investigates and deals with uh, crashes of airplanes now the only thing you got from them was the day after the crash they're the head of that, uh, the chief of that BEA said um, they, that they had listened, supposedly, to the cockpit voice recording, and uh, there was no, there was a lot of noise, a lot, there were voices that could be discerned, but there was nothing. He said explicitly, he said there was nothing that would give any indication of what caused the crash, and that was that first and the last thing he said. That's the first and last thing that you heard from that official organization that is tasked with investing this, investigating this, uh, investigating airplane crashes. The first and last thing you heard from those people was that statement that there was nothing on the vo- cockpit voice recorder that uh, could indicate what caused the crash. A lot of nothing else, yeah. and then all you have on top after that is just a media circus telling everybody what happened. This is journalists telling people what happened. And where are they getting information? Well, they're getting information, obviously, from other sources, like these unnamed French military officials. Who are these people? What's their agenda? Where are they getting their information from? They're not accountable, apparently. And the whole thing is a complete and utter farce. Okay. The BEA guy said a lot of noise. You he said hear. there were noises, different noises. It's very difficult. It's, very, it's a very... I take it they weren't saying that they could hear how the co-pilot was breathing. Because that was bizarre. He was he was being professional about it because he you listen to it and it takes a long time to analyze that kind of thing and to come to some conclusion as to what happened. But he didn't say what was on it. He said there were there was a lot of noise and a lot of vo- uh, and various voices. But he said it takes a long time to decipher and determine what those noises and voices actually mean. And nobody uh, in the right mind would come out and make some categorical statement as to what. Uh, the cause of the crash was based on, on, on that kind of information on the cockpit voice recorder, and that's where he left it. But it, he was apparently sidelined, and the yeah. media took over, and it was trial by media. It was ridiculous. It's incredible the juxtaposition of this, um, of the reliance for this narrative on the sounds heard in the cockpit, i.e., the second black box, the cockpit data recorder, when that was within one day. It's been a year, well, nearly a year since MH17 went down. Mm-hmm. They've had the two damn black mm-hmm. boxes since since that time, very carefully guarded by well, the rebels know. in Donetsk. And we haven't heard a peep of what's really on that. No, well, they've actually, they said last year, not long after that crash, fairly quickly, equally ridiculous was that they said that in the media, 
investigators in Holland were reported as saying um, that the that the cockpit voice recorders and the the, the two uh, the two recorders, two black boxes, would probably not provide anything useful in determining what caused MH the crash of MH17 because they said that if it, if it was hit by a missile that the missile would have uh, you know destroyed the electronics or the the electrics on the plane and would have therefore cut off uh, power to the black boxes so you wouldn't hear anything and of course we still don't hear anything that, that so the, you know somebody seeds these ridiculous notions and just says it as a fact a fait accompli there you go that's it it's over so uh, no one asks anymore what's on the cockpit voice recorders from um, or the black boxes from MH17 but you have in this case you have the opposite which is that immediately on extremely little data which no one would uh, should presume to, to make a determination about they immediately develop this grandiose you know horrific tragic uh, uh, story about this suicide pilot and delve into his life and everybody and they're all like you know digging up his past where he was his girlfriend raiding his home grabbing scraps of paper from his trash and uh, it's just bizarre I mean it's it's exactly the same and MH17 is a very good uh, analogy or comparison to make between uh, that and uh, this and, and this German wings crash because both of them were clearly trial by media, trial by sensationalist yellow journalists, yellow, yeah. yellow journalism, where they basically just hype a story for ulterior motives. MH17, on the day after it happened, the broadsheets, particularly in the UK, but in the US as well, were Putin the killer, Putin killed my baby. I mean, and nobody, nobody in officialdom as part of the investigation teams in either of these cases stopped to say or tried to stop the media from doing this. They were fueling it. They were fueling this trial by media because they didn't want to do a proper investigation. They have no intention of doing a proper investigation because if they did a proper investigation and, and told the truth, obviously it would, not, uh, it would not confirm what they want people to believe. In the case of MH17, Putin shot down that plane with 198 people on board. In the case of German Wings, this crazy suicide pilot just slammed the plane into the mountain because he wanted to kill everybody, and he even sped it up. You know, according to the mm-hmm. the flight data recorder now, they're saying the second black box that they discovered um, just a few days ago, supposedly. Uh, yes, although they had initially said, well, in, in that first New York Times report, there's a mention of the other black box right. having been found. But the, then later, oh, we may never find it, and now we have found it, and it confirms our theory. It, it, can you it, imagine? It's, like, it's the mark of all these events, beyond just air crashes. We take interest in a particular story when you've got these this flurry of um, news, news stories coming out immediately that are rapidly changed. And, and that's fine. You know, very often somebody will go with something and actually that wasn't accurate. That can happen. Mm. But we're talking about a very deliberately written material that cites unnamed pe- and senior investigators or people close to the investiga- investigation saying very specific things. Mm. Not just sort of, oh, I may have got this wrong because I was looking at the wrong page or mm. something. You know, uh, that's a really, that's when we start to like, look at these things and go, something is going on here. Specifically, a narrative is being built 
that is essentially a cover story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the thing about the the black boxes is that they, um, you know, the first you have this these conflicting reports initially saying that the second one was found, the one with the flight data recorder, which tells you what was happening on the plane. Uh, at the very beginning, they said the, the cockpit, cockpit voice recorder had been uh, found, no problem, and that's what they were using to to back up this narrative they had already established, which was you know the suicide pilot. So the cockpit voice recorder was saying, or, or they heard on the cockpit voice recorder that uh, the pilot uh, went to go to the bathroom, he closed the door, when he, and then he tried to get back in. Um, he couldn't get back in. There was banging on the door, open the goddamn door, blah, blah, blah. Which And, and I wonder, I mean... He's I'm, alleged to have said they could hear those words being right. said. And right. I wonder if you can hear that uh, from the other side of a reinforced door. You know, I suppose you would hear bangs and stuff, but would you hear someone uh, shouting something through the door? I don't know. But anyway, this is what they claim. And um, so that was a cockpit voice recorder and the breathing, which has been contested, the breathing of the co-pilot supposedly, just nothing but breathing until the crash actually happened. Uh, that's been contested by a, a long-term captain, the French captain of uh, of this plane who worked for Air France for 18 years. He said, there's no way you could hear someone breathing. You could discern breathing on a cockpit voice, voice recorder. Um, so he's directly questioned that. Um he he questioned a few. This is a guy a guy called um, his first I can't remember his, surname, his first name. His surname is Arno. Um, he said that because the official investigator said that they heard the breathing on the cockpit voice recorder and they heard uh, a beep noise that when he pulled the the knob out to to twist the knob to set the altitude to one hundred feet, they heard a beep from that knob being pulled out and pushed back in to activate the descent. This guy said that that knob doesn't make any noise whatsoever. He knows this plane is set out. Right. He flew it for 18 years, basically. And he he also said that uh, that there's no mention of... A noise that should have been there heard. There should, should have been a loud beeping, a strident loud beeping noise coming from the attempts by the people outside to access the cockpit by using the emergency code on the panel outside the cockpit. You can push a, a an emergency code into a, a keypad, and when it uh, when it tries to open the door, there's an automatic loud strident beeping noise. But there's no mention of that, and it's inside the cockpit, so it should have been recorded in the cockpit voice recorder. But um, there was no mention of that. They used to justify uh, or to explain or to provide evidence for their claim. That the pilot had locked the co-pilot had locked the pilot out. They used the banging on the door and the open the goddamn door, uh, which is not really, you know, it's not the best evidence to present because it's you know it's spoken words and it's in in the context of uh, the person being outside the cockpit and it's on in the context of a noisy ambient noise cockpit. It would be far <clears throat> more uh, reliable in terms of evidence to cite evidence of a of a a known series of beeps, a type of beeping, because you know all of the different beeps and stuff on on, on a cockpit probably can be that that are that are produced in, you know, on a plane can be probably discerned, you know, particularly in in, in conjunction with a flight data recorder, you know. Uh, but they didn't mention that at all. So 
that's what uh, you know the, <sighs> the little info you can extract from the recordings of what took place inside a cockpit prior to a crash there are very distinct features that should have been there and there are features we're told were there that could not have been there according to this right this uh, french expert on this plane right okay so that's what we've got so far in the meantime they're to use the phrase from gary webb they're controversializing the hell out of this pilot subsequently finding things in his home like apparently depressive episode some years back before he joined the airline right which is just spurious to try and build a mental case well it's character assassination i mean anybody can do that i mean you go through you pick someone some member of the public and with a private investigator or access to their records you could demonize them and assassinate their character in the press if you wanted. You could find, and if you went through their trash and through the road, you know, I mean, you could pull up all sorts of things. These people and using the media, you could make them look like a demon if you wanted, mm-hmm. probably for the average person in the street, right? Um, so that's what they've done with this guy. And the suggestion was that the airline was a fault for not noticing that this was going on in the head of this one of their mm. pilots. <laughs> and then yeah, mind readers. Yeah. It's yeah they're mind readers, they're supposed to have known. And and was Lufthansa the owner of Wings, was Lufthansa at fault for not noticing this early on? What the hell? <laughs> you know? It's clearly spurious because they're asking them to prove a negative. Right. There's no evidence for it. No. The only possibility there is that this guy's illness was so well hidden. Mm-hmm. That he was passed with flying colors at a young age. Mm. He's flying as a co-pilot on short-haul European flights. Mm. And it somehow went under the radar. And he somehow, it just manifested suddenly or and or a few days beforehand. He decided, I'm going to do it this way. Yeah, That's all you got, really. Yeah, and, they, and they, they're so desperate that they dig up, um, they get his girlfriend to say that he had said to her at some point people are going to remember me recently that uh, some one day I'm going to do something uh, mm. something really important or really special and uh, people so, you know people people sit up and take notice or remember me how many people have said that to their girlfriends and you know pillow talk or something like that you know yeah. some even a bit narcissistic kind of thing you know I'm going to be king of the world or I'm going to be president someday or I'm going to do something that people remember me someone with a you know a bit of grandiosity you know so I mean it's such a common thing and taken out of context and placed in this context that they've already established bogusly of him as a suicide pilot suddenly it becomes totally different now it means that this was him admitting in that he was by, going to blow up a plane in that's trial, what they're saying yeah in trial by media it's a confession absolutely it's ridiculous you know and um so you know the guys and the narrative is he's depressed right so he wants to kill himself he's a regular glider pilot as a hobby as a hobby he he, he flies gliders in the french alps uh, so, but he's not obviously just your average depressive who wants to kill himself. He wants to kill a bunch of other people as well. He's got, uh, it's not just a case of suicidal tendencies here. He wants to be a mass murderer as well. Because, uh, obviously he's compass mentis to the extent where he can still go to work and stuff and, and carry on a relatively normal life uh, while being suicidal. Suicidal thoughts come and go, maybe. Uh, but rather than think to himself, well, I'm going to jump off a bridge or I know next time I go gliding, which is in maybe a week, I'll just crash my glider. 
because you know this guy doesn't just want to kill himself. He wants to, obviously he wants to kill. He wants to be a mass murderer, right? I mean, he's got other options. Why would he make that choice? Oh, but wait. It just came on him in the short one-hour, 30-minute flight. In the first 20 minutes of it, it just suddenly dawned on him, I know, I'll crash this plane. I'm suicidal. I'm going to crash this one. Yeah, great idea. Or he was just overtaken by some, you know, manic, depressive moment, which is kind of contradicted by his discussions with his pilot previous to that, which were amicable and normal and fine, but then all of a sudden, within a few minutes, boom, he's like, I want to kill myself and everybody right now. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this pilot to go to the toilet. Yes. Do you need to go to the toilet? He go to the toilet. Don't you want to go to the toilet? Alone. Go to the toilet. Please go to the toilet. Go on. Don't you, need, don't you need to pee? Here, have some more tea. Please get out there and go to the toilet. Which is unusual on a short-haul flight. Pilots it's try to not... Rarely ever do it, according rarely. to most pilots. Rarely. Because they know it's a short-haul flight. It's a pain in the ass to get up out of your seat and go back into the cabin and possibly wait in line with passengers to get into the toilet. If you need to go, you go before you get on the flight. Pilots do this every day, day in, day out. They have their pee schedule probably down pretty well, and they usually don't do it on a plane, right. unless it's a long-haul flight. If well, it's a short-haul flight... Well, the, the only logical thing then is that both pilots conspired. Oh, no, but can't, because the second one, we're told, desperately trying, was to, desperately trying to save the plane. Hmm. He changed his mind, maybe. I tell you, it's just Hollywood. Like It's complete and utter Hollywood fantasy, you know? And anybody, everybody should should come to this conclusion. Looking at the way it's the whole situation has progressed, it's a farce. But people are prevented from going there because of the implications. Yeah, because the implications is that it is a farce. It's a cover up. It's a whitewash. They've created this narrative to cover up something else. What else are they covering up? And people don't want to go there, so they say, you know what? For my own peace of mind. I'm going to go with the bullshit story because it kind of makes sense, especially if I don't think too much about it. It doesn't make sense even if you don't think too much about it. A cursory glance at it should leave you with a lot of questions. But people just go with it because of the implications. The implications obviously are that this is not true and the plane was crashed by someone else. Um, In the couple of articles that I've written about it, in the second article, I kind of, having thought about the possible options... Obviously, uh, one of the options uh, has is, is some kind of weather-related uh, situation, uh, which we think has happened in previous crashes this year alone. And for example, the Air Asia, Air Asia crash—the fact that it uh, shot up uh, very quickly and then shot back down very quickly—suggests some kind of a strange anomalous. A severe updraft and then a downdraft that basically picked the plane up and slammed it down into the ground. So, and there are other... There were anom- severe thunderstorms in the area. Severe th- thunderstorms, yeah, with the Air Asia crash. Yeah. So uh, that's always a possibility that you look at, but then there were no thunderstorms in the area at the time uh, of the German wings crash. It was pretty much perfect flying conditions. It was 10.30, <clears throat> on a Tuesday morning. The uh, sky was clear. Um, so kind of rule that one out. Um, the other thing might be, uh, as we suspect, for the Air France flight in 2009 over the Atlantic going from Brazil to France, 
uh, it was a night at, at night in the middle of the night um, and on that one it's we suspect that I've also written an article on that one and it's uh, the evidence argues for a, a sudden and catastrophic well a meteorite a meteorite uh, explosion of which there have been many yeah an increasing number over the past 10 years a because, pilot going because the other direction or pilots flashed right they? for Portugal uh, I can't remember the name of the airline but it was a Portuguese airline going in the opposite direction saw a flash in the sky at around that time uh, so it's possible that that was that, that Air France plane in 2009 was taken down by a, a shockwave from a from a, a space rock exploding like we've said they've been happening all the time uh, over the mm. past, increasingly over the past 10 years, people around the world have been seen, seeing them. If you check on YouTube, you'll see dozens, hundreds of, of dash cam videos of these king, things flying through the sky and people hearing booms mm. all across the planet. So these things are flying through our <clears throat> atmosphere all the time. It's not unlikely that at some point a plane would be would get the, the wrong end of, of one of these. We think Not that necessarily a direct hit, but it no. creates an enormous blast well, yeah, high in the atmosphere. It's a cone-shaped downward blast of mm. air and even a kind of electromagnetic uh, energy, effectively, from a... That knocks out the systems, yeah. Right, that could knock out the electrical systems. But then, but then in your memory of that investigation, the they were also short on details then and cagey with... Absolutely. They yeah. took, it took them three years, or four years, I think, to actually come up with the the final uh, explanation and um, they they, <laughs> they come up initially they come up with that the, there are these things called pitot tubes that are little sensors outside the aircraft that uh, detect the, the speed uh, of the plane and wind speed and ground speed and all that kind of stuff and um, they said that they had frozen over uh, therefore thereby giving uh, wrong readings of uh, of speed uh, to the pilot to the pilots right and the pilot tried to adjust and uh, you know went into a that di- I mean it's just so implausible as well because it's never happened before really you know um, and and what the pilots in that case were expected to to have done is just totally counterintuitive and ridiculous you know to to, to make such a catastrophic judgment you know if a pilot it, gets, in no way was it suggested that this pilot on the Air France crash over the Atlantic. Deliberately crashed. The Not plane. deliberately. Did it through error. Uh, through error. Okay. Yeah. Well, why? Well, why didn't we hear that this time? As a possible suggestion for the crash over France. Yeah. Well, because they they couldn't come up with a, a good enough reason why he would make such a catastrophic error on such a short haul flight in perfect weather conditions in the daytime. Uh, the Air France flight nighttime, not being able to see clearly. Of course, the idea that <clears throat> he didn't realize that the plane was stalling. You know, that he was going so slow. I mean, <laughs> you know, airline pilots know the sounds of engines. They hear them all the time, every day. Uh, you know, and an engine, uh, the sound of an engine increases and decreases with the, with the thrust and the throttle being pushed. So They probably have a very good sense for how a plane is, the feel of the exactly, air. Exactly, the feel of it. It's like driving your car. It's like you saying you don't know that you're going, that you're not going fast anymore in your car. You know, even at nighttime. Yeah, you know? your speedometer is telling you it's at 10. no. We're going fine here. The, the trees are flying by like right, lightning, yeah. but yeah. We're, all, we're just a 10. <laughs> okay, it was nighttime and they were over the Atlantic, but uh, still, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a sense, you know, of uh, atmospheric sense, if you know what I mean, in a car even. You know, you hear noises. You hear the noise of the plane rushing through the air. 
inside a cabin, a cabin of a plane and inside a, inside a car. The whole thing's just ridiculous, you know. So, but the, um, one thing on the Air France flight was that the, the bodies, a lot of the bodies were found without any clothes, which even investigators said suggested that, um, that it broke up in the air mm-hmm. and that people fell out of the plane and the wind speed ripped their clothes off. Um, <clears throat> that's, but they didn't, uh, really explain how it could have broken up in the air. Um, other than as it was tumbling down, maybe, you know, wings sheared off or something, but the idea that the fuselage of a plane would break apart simply by falling out of the air is completely bogus as well. So there's so many inconsistencies and non-answers and uh, ridiculous suggestions in these crashes. And the explanation for these crashes is um, it, it's, it just boggles the mind, but people just, People don't look at it too too much, and they assume that the investigating authorities are are doing their job properly, and whatever they say, they're they're being honest. But the fact is, they're not. They're not going to be honest about a, a meteorite uh, causing the crash of a plane. They're not going to be honest about a severe <clears throat> weather anomaly, um, because they they don't like to convey to people that they're not. In control that the, that the plane. I mean, you've got you've got government authority uh, wanting to maintain its uh, appearance of authority, and you know not wanting to freak people out. And you've also got the aircraft manufa- manufacturers, who, uh, which is maybe even more important, the, the the pressure they would put on to make sure that the least damaging story of what happened to our plane, the least damaging to us, is what is the official truth. They are very reluctant to Absolutely. have the final stamp on any investigation be crash. If possible, they yeah. try and veer it into accidental this or accidental that. Yeah, external, ex- circumstances ex- external to our company. Yeah, it wasn't our plane, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Uh, that's what they always want to conclude, if possible. So, But in this case, uh, then, so we rule out meteorite-type activity. We rule out uh, weather uh, anomaly. What else can cause it? Um... Obviously, we were like suicide pilot. Um, the only thing left, uh, which is the kind of elephant in the room, is the fact that these planes, most commercial planes, we don't know for sure, but we assume given the things that have been said uh, in the media in the past or, and reported from uh, uh, corporations like Boeing and um, and Airbus, <clears throat> that these planes, a lot of commercial planes, maybe all commercial planes, are, are equipped with a, an uninterruptible autopilot system, which was presented in the years after 9-11 as a way to prevent hijacking of planes like 9-11 happening again, which was that they planes can be commandeered uh, from remotely from the ground via satellite uh, the, the controls of the plane can be taken away from the pilots and the plane can be flown to a, a destination. This is in the event of a hijacking. They become aware that a hijacking is happening. The pilots say Mayday, whatever, whatever code they use, 700, for um, a hijacking. And they, the, the authorities somewhere then get their asses in gear. And I don't know how they do it, but obviously it's not something that's just waiting to happen at any moment. They don't have some guy sitting or a group of people sitting and monitoring all, whatever it is, 100,000 or hundreds of thousands of planes flying in the air at any point in time, monitoring each one and just waiting for a hijack code 
and push a button and say, okay, take control of that one. That's not happening. It must be automated to a large extent. No, it's not automated. Someone has to do it. Someone has to physically go and take control of a specific plane. I mean, what I'm saying is that it's it's ridiculous to think that there is anybody sitting around 24-7, 365 days a year, monitoring every single plane flying in the skies at any point in time and waiting with their finger on a keyboard to to, to push it to say, take control of that plane via the uninterruptible autopilot system. That's not happening, obviously. That's not what's going on. So the technology exists, but the the implies message to the masses is that that means we got you covered in any event of any hijacking. But no, that can't be the case because there's no way they can actually ensure that for every single flight that takes place, no. thousands of flights no. that take place every day. But okay. they can do it. The point is it is possible. technology is possible if they chose to do it. So it's not so much an anti-hijacking system as a hijacking system. Right. It's better to call it a hijacking system because that's what it is. It's if someone wanted to hijack the plane remotely and fly it somewhere else, they could do it. But they would pick a specific plane and take control of it and do whatever they wanted with it. And I think, given given <clears throat> uh, the implausibility of all of the other options, that that's what happened. Right. The descent they've given of this craft would make sense. They're, they're claiming that the in the narrative that Andreas Lubitz changed the altitude setting to 100 feet but didn't change its actual course, correct? Mm-hmm. And that this, he essentially didn't need to do anything else. He talked to the computer on the plane and the plane's computer dived it down only based on and, and what I was going to say is that the uh, the altitude shown the path of it is very steady and straight, almost 45 degrees. Well, that's because it's autopilot. The, <clears throat> the autopilot is going to take the plane down uh, in a controlled fashion, to to uh, uh, it's it's basically the best possible descent of a plane. If if the plane um, for whatever reason needed to descend from thirty thousand feet to a hundred feet, um, <clears throat> when you set the dial to one hundred feet, the autopilot will navigate or bring the plane down <clears throat> to that uh, altitude in a controlled moderate fashion that doesn't throw everybody out of their seats or throw luggage mm. all around the place that everybody's okay. There's so, an, an intriguing possibility here. They kind of told, told half-truth in that that did happen to the plane. It was adjusted on its regular course up yeah. to Dusseldorf, but the altitude was adjusted to 100 feet, mm. yes, but it wasn't the co-pilot that did it. No. It was done remotely. Yeah, exactly. That's the That's the most plausible explanation that someone using this remote system, simply changed the altitude setting on the plane in such a way that, well, they took control of the, the cockpit effectively, um, all instrumentation, uh, denying the pilots any access or any ability to change anything, and they simply adjusted the altitude as it was flying uh, over the Southern Alps, adjusted the altitude to 100 feet, and the plane just said, okay, go to 100 feet. And... But then it was, there was a certain, I think there may have been a certain amount of, um, well, maybe the autopilot as well, because if you look at the trajectory of it, it goes down in this progressive fashion. It took about nine minutes to go from 38,000 feet to, to ground. Not, it didn't go to ground level because it's in the mountains, right? Mm. Um, but the trajectory that's shown is that it goes down in this descent, but then levels off for a very short distance uh, before it hits the mountain. 
so that suggests to me that someone was uh, allow, allowed the autopilot <clears throat> to descend the plane in this controlled fashion, but then once it got to a certain level, which was facing into a, a mountain range, that it was maybe, uh, or I don't know if that was someone who actually took control and then changed the coordinates or, or changed the flight plan, changed the direction, or or simply the autopilot did that, because the autopilot isn't going to take the plane down. You can't tell the autopilot to take it to zero, you know, because in that way, it's the, the, the autopilot isn't going to put the plane into a nose-down descent and keep it going until it, the nose hits the ground, right? Because that'll destroy the plane. <clears throat> so I think at a, at, at the, they said they lost uh, radar tracking of it at about 6,000 feet, but the mountains in that area are about 6,000 feet high. So it seems to me that it's possible that someone then, um, <clears throat> you know, leveled the plane off. Effectively flew it remotely. Into flew it remotely for the last 30 seconds. Uh, and there's reports just today that, of course, it was the suicide pilot who did this, but, did this, but they're saying that uh, uh, the speed was increased to, you know, almost a maximum for the airframe, for the, the, the capabilities of the plane, it was increased as it flew into the into the mountain. So the people who did this, you know, obviously wanted maximum destruction, maximum speed, maximum destruction, and that's what happened. Yeah, there's a. So who was it? Well, I mean, well, just for the, the, there's a retired airline pilot, Northwest Airlines, Bill McConnell. He, um, I mean, he's retired because. He's probably hit his retirement age, but he left under somewhat acrimonious circumstances in 2006 because he's one of the few pilots who actually spoke out and said, um, I'm not happy. I don't know how he learned about it, but he discovered that the planes he was flying, Boeings, were all fitted with this technology. And the pilot's issue with it was they did not want this to be uninterruptible, that there was no way for them inside the cockpit to override the system okay, fine, if something goes wrong, it can be taken control of remotely from elsewhere. But in the event then that the pilots are actually fine, or it's a false, it's an error, that there's an ultimate oversight by a human on the plane. And you've probably seen there's a lot of discussion in the media. Oh, should we introduce this technology? Oh, well, we can't because the pilots' associations are kicking up a fuss about this. Well, now look what they've gone and done. I mean, it's just totally absurd because A, it's already in place. Maybe not on every single plane, but it appears to be on most Boeing's and Airbuses. And B, it's so sickening because it, again, puts the blame on this particular pilot for this crash, but also throws it back in their faces at, at the pilots who have a concern for the passengers that this system is cannot be taken control of by them. It throws it back in their face that, oh, you're protesting this Clearly, the people are calling for it, and we, the media, are just, you know, voicing their concerns. And it's it's so like, yeah. And I mean, the Daily Mail, especially, I've got to say, the, the British press on this are like, within two days, they had a headline. Within two days of this crash, they had this the, the whole headline: Why can't airlines seize control of doomed jets from the ground? The technology exists, but pilots and companies refuse to use it. Oh. It's just ah. uh, <clears throat> pilots and companies. By companies, you mean airline companies have no say 
It's the manufacturer that installs them. And the manufacturer of these planes are Boeing and Airbus. Boeing is a defense contractor. Boeing is the U.S. government. Uh, Boeing is up to its eyeballs in war crimes and war making, war mongering, uh, as is Airbus. New markets, remember? Um, so putting these systems on the plane discreetly without telling the airlines is is uh, is a no-brainer. It's easy to do. I mean, it's probably uh, a small kind of circuit board. Basically, who's what? Are the pilot going to go in there and uh, root around and try and find it? I mean, it's just ridiculous. They have no say. They can complain about it if they think it's there, but there's nothing they can do about it, you know. So, um, and this obviously has parallels with the idea of remote controlling airlines and flying them, or airplanes and flying them into uh, into solid objects, uh, as echoes of nine eleven, <clears throat> obviously. Because, um, well, we're not going to get into 9-11, but the evidence suggests that um, several of the planes on, or all of the planes on 9-11 were remotely controlled in this way because this technology existed pre-9-11. And, um, the evidence being that none of the alleged hijackers could fly a damn Cessna Well, of course, yeah. And that even a lot of them weren't actually, not only were they not on the planes, but they're still alive. So, but 9-11 is a big, murky uh, Still, though, you look at, the, look at the extraordinary maneuvers on that day. Some of those planes had gone as far as Pennsylvania and turned around and come back to target buildings. I mean, to target specific buildings, never mind, just, just hit a city, Mohammed. Where? Oh, just that direction, east. I mean, to actually go and find and hit, like, a very... <laughs> That's like uh, even yeah. expert pilots; they'd be flying by of course. the seat of their pants. It's the kind of thing to try and do that. It's the, it's the kind of thing that uh, only a, really a computer could do uh, effectively. Well, and that's what we're talking the, about. The concept, the reason why we're bringing this up, the concept is that um, <laughs> the phrase that was used about nine eleven was that, well, we're in a new world now because. Even our airplanes can be turned into missiles and used against us. Well, exactly. That's exactly what this technology is, is for. It's turning airplanes into missiles in the sense that they can target with surgical precision where you want them to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's scary in the hands of... Well, it's scary for people, obviously, because yeah. uh, it engenders a lot of uh, anxiety and fear among the, the population uh, because people, a lot of people might feel... Uh, anxious or a bit nervous anyway in a plane. At the best of times. At the best of times, but uh, the idea now that um, that they're not so secure anymore, it's not the safest way to travel anymore. Certainly in the last year, it hasn't been the safest way to travel. Um, creates a lot of uh, disquiet and, and general, generalized fear among the, among the population. Um, but I don't think the point of this was to create fear, although it's a, it's a side effect or a, a bonus, let's say. Um, if you look at Assuming uh, what we're saying is true, and it's the most plausible explanation, that someone deliberately chose this plane <clears throat> to fly into a mountain to kill all the people, uh, why did they pick that plane? Uh, well, you look at where the plane came from, the majority of the passengers, uh, let's say, were Spanish, uh, I think, weren't they? About half. It was about half, okay, so there was a 
a fair number of Spanish people, which obviously Germans, there's a lot of nationalities, but the majority of the bulk of it was Spanish and German, mm-hmm. flying from Barcelona, uh, crashed in France. So you give the Spanish government, obviously, a, a heads up. Uh, you give the French government a, a heads up or a, a headache. It's crashed on their territory. They have to deal with it. And you give the German government and the major German airline, Lufthansa, uh, a problem. And obviously Airbus is a European uh, owned, effectively it's French, but also it's generally, generally a European French, part, German, partnership. Italian, yeah, it's a mix. Yeah. Um, consortium. It's a consortium, yeah. So all of those people are involved, but the, specifically Spain, France and Germany. <clears throat> so we're putting it in a wider context of why someone would want to uh, send a warning of some description, <clears throat> put them on notice essentially, that uh, we control all your airplanes where we can, and we can crash them wherever we want. We can turn them into missiles, like you just said. Um, who would want to do that, putting in the context of uh, what's going on geopolitically <clears throat> with Germany, France, Spain, European countries, vis-a-vis Russia, for example. Uh, <clears throat> there's been a lot of effort made uh, over the past uh, year or two by the U.S. and the elite, let's say, of this world to um, make sure that Russia is marginalized in the global community. And as I wrote in another article That's a couple of weeks ago about uh, <clears throat> a long-standing desire on the, the powers that be who are kind of centered in the U.S., let's say, um, to marginalize Russia and make sure that Russia never asserts itself on the world stage as a dominant power in Eurasia and kind of sidelines the U.S., and the way, the way that uh, they would do that or the threat that's felt by the U.S. is that uh, Western European powers, in particular Western European countries, would form an alliance of some description or a close alliance, let's say, with Russia. Uh, and Eurasia would become the dominant power and unseat a, the exceptional United States of America. <coughs> this is what they've been trying to do for over 100 years continuously. And in recent uh, weeks and months, we've seen the French government, uh, the Spanish government, and the German government, the Italian government as well, uh, making noises about the pointlessness and uselessness of um, sanctions against Russia, and that they should be not should not be reinstated when they expire this year soon. Um, and you can imagine what else is going on behind that, or what that is indicative of. It's a kind of a reproachment or people engaging in real politic and realizing, European people, politicians realizing that, you know, realizing what side their bread's buttered on, basically, and and realizing that uh, following the dictates of the U.S. is not in their own interests. It's uh, self-destructive, it's pointless, and it's... it's, It might lead to war in Europe. Yeah, exactly. Europe would would be ultimately pay a heavy price if anything went wrong. So you can imagine a lot of stuff going on in the background. You can imagine certain people in certain positions of power eavesdropping on those conversations or getting wind of those kind of that move or that uh, movement in that direction and uh, wanting to send a warning to uh, Western European governments uh, about about that. 
What is the content of that warning? What's the message? Well, the warning is that we can uh, take control of commercial airliners right. and we can fly them wherever we want. Including yours, including planes you fly on. Well, theoretically, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I would assume, especially after this, that uh, politicians would not be flying in commercial airliners or would be uh, have their would be quickly putting together a technical crew to take apart the cockpit of the planes, the presidential planes, yeah. and look for an uninterruptible autopilot system and yank it out. Uh, you'd think they'd be doing that, but that doesn't, sure, that might make them feel a little bit better, but it doesn't make them feel so much better uh, in the context of the, the generalized threat of being able to commandeer any commercial airliner uh, any other one and fly it wherever they want. I mean, how often is all how often is all land in the uh, in the Elysee? And how right. and how how could, how would he how well would he do if uh, a plane on approach to uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport happened to deviate into the Elysee? I mean, it's a direct threat to anybody. I mean, not even. I mean, that's just uh, imagining certain things. I mean directly to targeting Holland or, or someone like that. But um, uh, obviously it's a major problem for them, even if planes start falling out of the sky, planes start crashing into into major cities. Not that it would, you know, not the Elysee, but, you know, into a major city, into mm. Paris. Into, it's such a sick, I mean... Into Berlin. I'm trying, into, to, I'm trying to see the logic in it. And it seems like a very... Well, apart from it being utterly insane, I mean, you just killed 150 people, mm. but there got to be other ways to convey messages, even threatening ones, yep. to the political elites in countries you're trying to. Yeah, but you have to remember these people get off on killing people. Right, okay, and that's got to factor into it because... It does. We're talking about Sandy Hook eating the plane up before it hit the mountain? Let's go back to Sandy Hook, you know. Okay. The same, 22 school children. Yeah, the same cadre of people, type of people in the same organization, in the same club, who actually uh, not only are willing, but actually enjoy uh, shooting 22 toddlers. So they might have a reason and motive for picking that school at this time and having a narrative ready to go with it. But the big factor in the whole reason why they're doing it is because they enjoy right. doing it. It's a win-win it. as far as I'm concerned, you know. They get their jollies and they also get to serve an agenda, a broader agenda. But just on the, I mean, on the details of the German wings flight and the flight data recorders or the cockpit voice recorders, there's only three locations in Europe that analyze those. Right, so... One's in the UK, we one's know in from the UK. I don't know where the other two are. I don't even know if there's one in France. But there's one in the UK and access to those rooms are strictly controlled. They're, uh, they're soundproof rooms, they're electronically sealed doors, etc. Only certain people can get, in, can get into them or can listen to the Very few people are allowed to listen to the basically the investigators. So <clears throat> tampering with the cockpit recorder, uh, I mean, there's a few different options, obviously. They could be completely misrepresenting what certain people get access uh, are the ones who, who listen to it and then misreport what was on it because only a few people are allowed to hear it or they simply record uh, what they want to be heard 
on a it's like a circuit board with various chips on it and it's hooked up to a computer and you download data from it I mean it's not hard to to switch one of those out let's say and you get your hands on 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 this circuit board from the manufacturer mm-hmm. you upload your data to it stick it in your pocket you walk into the room and say and it could be as, as simple as an old switcheroo type thing you know what I mean well, they in, could get the genuine cockpit voice recorder. It could be taken to this location. Somebody with access goes in and just switches the two circuit boards. And then you there it is. You don't need a whole team of conspirators in no. that location. No, something's just done yeah. on the QT. That reminds me, when the New York Times report from basically 12 hours, less than a day after the crash, when they mentioned that second box, which is the actual data recorder, mm-hmm the sort of main block, black box, they didn't just say it was found, but they said that, well, the memory card is missing. Right. <laughs> well, that right there points to uh, some kind of dodgy maneuver being done with with the circuit board, yeah. uh, the, the removable circuit board in the, in the cockpit voice recorder. Uh, somebody found it, someone took it location, um, and it, uh, it was lost on the way or something or yeah. or or it was you know it, it arrived at its destination someone found it it was taken was packed taken down the mountain packed into a car driven off taken somewhere and then on its route to the center the cockpit voice recorder uh, analysis center um someone removed yeah. the the circuit board so when it arrived there it was oh it's missing that's the first initial reports. It's not then, plausible. Then it was found. Suddenly then it appeared in the investigative center where they analyzed this data. Oh, look, here it is. Where did this come from? I thought it wasn't in it when we got when it got here. Oh, no, it was. It was just that it had fallen out. Or, well, we took it because, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't seated properly. Whatever. I mean, you can imagine. people. <laughs> well, if someone has an agenda and some control over a situation like that, it's not hard to do something like that, you know? Yeah. Really. And just to give you an idea how tightly the, the crash scene was, um, cordoned off, it was an entire week before um, regular, say, civilian investigators were allowed near the site. There were a total of 15 military personnel, the French Interior Minister reported just a few days ago, who were allowed at the site for an entire week. So, I mean, that's a tightly controlled situation. Right. And the idea then that within hours somebody's on to the New York right. Times, it, the, the simplest, yeah, it was a military, the, the simplest explanation that somebody just called and said, "Here are my credentials. This is what happened." Really, go with the story, mm-hmm. and not that they concocted to remove. You know, get up, oh quick, get up to the mountain, take this memory card out and stick that one in. You know, <laughs> no. it's much easier. No, when you have fifteen a, military personnel only allowed for the first week. You've got plenty of time to find the cockpit voice recorder, to find the flight data recorder, and to do whatever you want with them. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the guy who got on the New York Times on the very first day, he knew what the uh, the, the quickly um, kind of hashed out plan was going to be, which was that it's a uh, it's a suicide pilot story. And he, it's possible that he said that without ever listening to the cockpit voice recording. It was a couple of voice recording clearly in this situation is not necessary. In fact, it's 
it's a, it's a. In fact, they don't want it to be heard. Can't we just no. hide it? You know, we've got a story that we're going to run with. Uh, we're not having an investigation here. You don't understand this. We're not having an investigation. We have a story of what happened, and that's what we're going with. And everybody else will shut up. That's what's going on here. Yeah. Um, we mentioned that a whole number of crashes have happened. In recent years, obviously, there's a pattern of planes doing weird things. Come back to 9-11, as Joe mentioned. Uh, so it's it's good to, you know, people are comparing events and trying to see similarities and so on. I, I think there are obviously going to be different reasons for different planes crashing. Um, but the case for this one being remotely hijacked. Uh, I just want to mention that a recent story in, oh God, it's also the Daily Mail. I know, not reliable. Nevertheless, it's from... 18- it's reliable for bullshit. It's reliable for, for bullshit. What, but what they want to bullshit us it, with. Okay, this is the bullshit they wanted to give us about MH370. The only evidence for which is that it just disappeared somewhere south of Vietnam March last year. So on March 16th, they were running with the story that one of the pilots may have had sudden suicidal inclinations and deliberately crashed the plane. Um... The headline was, is missing Malaysian jet, MH370, the world's first cyber hijack? Chilling theory claims, chilling new theory claims hackers could use a mobile phone to take over the controls. I don't know about a mobile phone, but nevertheless, they seeded that little story. And of course, that is what they can do. They can be remotely taken control of. Um, Now, they they kind of, they wanted to insinuate well it's it's kind of two stories in one so they were temporarily they were running with the the pilot of the Malaysian jet having being a suicidal but they didn't stick with it um unlike in the recent German wings they've gone completely overboard to try and scapegoat Andreas Lubitz nevertheless uh, I don't like it at all I hate it but they they're seeding this idea it was already it's already long been out there you know that planes can be taken over remotely and yeah it's just it's just a chilling I don't know if it's a coincidence or not that one year ago almost a week MH370 disappears probably for an entirely different reason but you can see the workings of the minds that let's say have an interest in covering up what really happened to it at work in both incidents. Cyber terrorists, well, I think uh, we know they can do it, It, but it isn't going on all the time. It's got to be extreme weather incidents, mm-hmm. cosmic weather included, meteor incidents, yeah. um, outright terrorism mm-hmm. in the sense of like real terrorists, the powers that be, whoever the hell is doing this. And it's just rare. I mean, the statistics in normal times anyway, the statistics were right. It's very unlikely that a plane would just crash even in extremely dub- in extreme weather. Planes are built to withstand all kinds of circumstances. Yeah, they're fragile, but they can do a lot of things to cope with any number of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Not Ex- under normal conditions. Under normal conditions. But we're not in normal conditions We're anymore. not in normal conditions on two fronts. Namely, 
there is an increased random factor by the fact that the environment is going absolutely haywire. That's the as above. The so below is that we're in this uh, time when there are people in power who are doing increasingly desperate things mm-hmm. to retain that control in part because the environment's going absolutely to flowy. Yeah, it's a feedback. It's a feedback one into the other into mm-hmm. the other. We suspect one of the Malaysian airliners was an extremely anomalous event, but as a result of what's going on on this planet. Mm. And the other was a feedback in the sense that it was done deliberately by someone, obviously to frame Russia and Putin. Mm-hmm. So they are connected, but not in the way that we can't find, you're not going to find one explanation, one theory that will fit all of these incidents. No. But they do fit in a big yeah. picture, though. Well, it's generalized chaos on the planet on the human level and on the environmental level. And, you know, normal normal services have been suspended, people, you know. Normal is no longer here. It's abnormal. It has been abnormal for quite a while, and it's going to get worse. Um So, yeah, and I think there'll be more uh, of these. I mean, I think it's interesting uh, that uh, airplanes, commercial airplanes, are are kind of targeted in this way um, by whatever, whoever, because... um, It's where we're very vulnerable. Well, people are very vulnerable. There's a large number of people on it. A lot of buying for your buck type of thing and that depraved way of looking at things. And um, it spreads fear. It's it's one of the most effective ways of spreading uh, f- fear around the world, almost because it's such a high profile story. It's it's a large number of people all dying in a very uh, horrible way. And um, this is what these people, these these people in positions of power, the powers that be, whatever you want to call them, this is what they focus on. This is their agenda: is to spread fear. Uh, amongst the human population and to control people through doing that because they're desperate to control people and because they're sick. They're, they're fundamentally and profoundly sick uh, psychologically, but they're also very high-functioning high sick people. They're, well, I suppose, like a really high-functioning psychopath type thing, someone who's very intelligent, very smart, but extremely and profoundly sick in an evil kind of way, as we might define it as evil. Um, uh, unfortunately, evil people, not all evil people are crazy. Crazy. Uh, there are people, the people <laughs> who are ruling this world, basically, are evil, but they're not crazy in the sense of they're not going to do something stupid and get themselves uh, kind of thrown in jail or caught yeah. or whatever. They have insinuated themselves into positions of power through their evil natures by basically doing whatever is necessary to get into positions of power. And once they're there, they have free reign to exploit and to give uh, or to give vent to their their nature, their destructive, nihilistic, uh, evil nature. And this is the kind of things that they come up with, you know, um, so it's um, it's all good like <laughs> it's all good it's all I don't good. know it's uh, I was going to say something else they're um, highly 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 motivated to do it I mean and to do it right 
like you said, they don't want to get caught. Um, uh, what I mean by motivated, obviously, if you have power, you're motivated to keep it. But I think um, the place that people don't want to go, that we talked about in the beginning, is that they're highly motivated to do it because they enjoy it. I think they get the jollies mm. from the idea of terrified people plunging into a mountain. Mm. And that's in large part why people will accept any old story that's given to them because mm. they don't want to go there. No. But the people that they're 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 gonna well they're, they're not dealing with. The people that they just shut out of that they kind of suspect are doing these kinds of things. Yeah. It's totally different for them. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, one way to get an idea of who we're dealing with here or the type of person we're dealing with is to watch some YouTube videos on psychopaths. Um, there's the there's the Ted Bundys and the um, Jeffrey Dahmers. Uh, there's videos of these people you know, being interviewed. Um, there's one guy, um, what's his name? Uh, his name is Richard Kuklinski who's called The Iceman uh, there's something on YouTube called The Iceman Tapes um, if you watch some of that interview with that guy uh, and watch it all the way through and then understand that he's a kind of a, a lower level compared to the people in positions of power uh, who, are, who are ruling over us and who are carrying out uh, these kind of uh, these kind of attacks on uh, on the civilian population. Understand that the nature that is exhibited by this guy, uh, Richard Kuklinski, uh, is the same nature as the people in positions of power, but they are much more much more highly functioning, let's say they're they uh, they're careful to, to to kind of cover their tracks. Of course, they're in positions of power, so they can much more easily cover their tracks and get away with things. And they're the ones formulating policy, etc. But in terms of their nature and what they enjoy doing, and the complete lack of emotional response, the complete fearlessness they have uh, when confronted with anything that would normally uh, provoke fear very easily in a normal human being. These people don't have it. They don't have any kind of emotional qualms or any emotions whatsoever uh, when they consider, for example, killing large numbers of people in a gruesome and bloody way. Uh, not only do they not have a, a, a fear-based or a, a, you know, any kind of negative emotion uh, in response to it, there's a, a kind of an, a curious, there's an enjoyment out of it, but it's a bit of a contradiction because they don't seem to enjoy things very much either. <clears throat> They're quite banal in that sense, but it's just this cold, calculating, uh, you know, machine-like um, motivation and, and drive to, to do these things, you know. It's very hard to penetrate uh, from a normal human perspective because it's just so alien, effectively. It's a completely alien human being in the sense of there's something fundamentally wrong with their psychological wiring. Uh, they're not wired uh, psychologically in the same way uh, as a normal human being. Uh, 
they're just stone cold. Uh, they can be charming and all that kind of stuff when they want to be, but when it comes down to it, when it comes down to just, you know, killing a bunch of people or planting a bomb, and there's no consideration whatsoever of is this right or wrong. They do it because they feel like doing it, uh, because it serves a certain a certain uh, agenda they want to 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 push or an aim they want to achieve, and it's a real problem. Yeah, but on the German wing thing, uh, people probably heard about a um, a video that was supposedly found, uh, and it's interesting that it came out just in the past few days, and I think this may be a genuine video. Um, of course, they used it to try and back up the official story. Uh, they said it was a video found on a mobile phone. And a very short video. Uh, this is uh, a French magazine called... Um, Paris Match. Paris Match. And uh, yeah. German, German Daily Rag, kind of like the Daily Mail in Germany, called uh, Bild. Uh, they both supposedly, uh, someone gave it to them, but didn't let them keep a copy. And it was a short video of from the back of the plane. And a very blurry, you couldn't see anybody's faces, but you could hear people screaming. And that was about it. And uh, when they announced that they had this video, and they wrote about it in their, in their publications, the investigators of German Wings immediately said it wasn't. I got the impression that there was a little bit of panic. They said it. Was, they said it was a hoax. Right. That was the panic. Yeah. They immediately. I mean, it was a strange thing to say. You know, when someone says some. I mean, Paris matches. It's 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 not trashy. It's not the weekly world news. It's you know they have proper journalists. So to immediately respond to something from a fairly reputable journalist, or a reputable reputable magazine, uh, immediately respond to them saying that they are that they have a video from the plane to immediately say it's hoax without any evidence to have not having seen the video themselves, the investigators, uh, to immediately say it's a hoax. It sounds like a bit of a, uh, well, you can, a knee-jerk reaction. Absolutely. Uh, you can imagine why. You're a you're leading investigation. Right. And you haven't seen this now video yet. And or you haven't approved its release. And then it pops up. It's not that it's show, it has. You're saying it's since, since been out. Initially, they they didn't publish it, but there's two the French and the German publications. The journalist said we've been shown it. Right, we, we right. weren't given a copy of it. But they were, we've seen it, and yes, it yeah. backs up. Well, it shows. And it seems genuine. Okay. And what it shows is the last moments of the flight. Um, from the back of the plane, no faces visible, kind of shaky, blurry, but audio, and the audio backs up. The idea, well, all the audio really backs up is the idea that uh, in the last moments of the flight, the flight, a lot of people were screaming uh, before it crashed into the mountain. So it, in that sense, it doesn't uh, back up anything in terms of the official story. Uh, unless you accept the official story, right? Because it's tagged on to the end. I mean, uh, this video is probably the only genuine proof or genuine evidence that we have of what happened to that plane, and all we can conclude from it is that there were people on the plane and they were screaming before the plane crashed into the mountain. But of course, the narrative has been established uh, had been established for a week or ten days before that that it was suicide pilots. So they used the investigators. Yeah, finally agreed that okay, it could be true, and if it is, then fine. But it just backs up our story. But it doesn't because you're 
the bit that comes before it about the suicide pilot has no genuine evidence for it. So these people had an immediate reaction. One of the, some French, again, military uh, official who was part of the investigation said that it was unwarranted. That was a strange thing to say. Uh, he didn't really it's like it was being that. done to him. Like, stop that. Stop. What do you mean? No, that, that don't say that. Don't say that there's a video because I haven't seen it. And what do you just shut up? But then it was like, okay, well, maybe it's not so bad. It's not going to expose anything contrary to what we've been saying. So, so go ahead. But and it's interesting that it came out just recently because it was just at, like we said, it was for the first week only 15 French military personnel were allowed on the site, and then after that time, a bunch of other hundreds of other uh, rescue workers came in, including uh, a bunch from Israel. Uh, came in and started sifting through the site. So the idea is that one of these hundreds of people that were then allowed subsequently into the site after a week, that one of them happened upon a badly damaged mobile phone that the first gang had missed. They took it away, said, well, let's, maybe maybe someone with a suspicion or maybe someone who didn't believe the official story uh, and then decided to give it to the media to... Or to show it. Someone show it must have gone into offices simultaneously right. in Paris and Berlin, said, here's a briefcase, open it up, here's a laptop, I can't give you a copy of it. And then the reporters describe what they see. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It's all of it. If I was there, if I'd been watching this story for a week, and then I was, in some reality, part of a rescue team that ended up on that site, and I found a mobile phone, you'd be damn sure I would not be handing it in to anybody. I'd be taking it straight home, and looking at what was on my computer. So it's possible amongst hundreds of people that there's a few at least who are suspicious of the story, along with most of the uh, airline pilots, or as, as represented by the, the Cockpit Association in Europe, they officially have come out and said that they're horrified at the um, at the way the investigation has gone on for the same reasons that we are. Yep. And these are genuine, these are, this is an organization that represents airline pilots throughout Europe. The, I have a quote here. The air accident investigation team in, no, hang on a second. The European Cockpit Association represents 38,000 European pilots. It says the role of the French prosecutor working alongside the air accident investigation team is a blurring of responsibilities and that the prosecutor's insistence so soon after the crash that the plane was brought down by the co-pilot is inappropriate. Of course it's it is. Gross, gross misconduct is what it is yeah. as part of an official uh, investigation. And you know, nobody can dispute this. Nobody should. No, nobody can. I don't care if they, they do or not. It's, it's, it's indisputable that this is a ridiculous and completely inappropriate way to conduct an investigation where you immediately, on the basis of some spurious uh, narrative uh, story told by some unnamed military official that it was the pilot who, who crashed the plane, uh, that then the media goes and starts uh, disseminating this ridiculous story and building on it and creating this narrative. That is not the way to conduct an investigation. It's grossly inappropriate. Um, you mentioned an Israeli team of air yeah, crash investigators no, going, what, what interest do they have? Well, there's, there's nothing really strange about that because um, there was one Israeli citizen okay. who, who died on board and the Israelis generally... Any time there's really citizen anywhere uh, dies, they send a team over to uh, to take and get the body and take it back for burial in Israel. You know, um, I don't think there's. I mean, certainly because the reason I say there's nothing really to see there is because, um, or probably nothing to see there is because uh, they didn't arrive until 
uh, until after that first week. I mean, they weren't on the scene during that first week with those 15 people. And they were just part of a bunch of international rescue uh, organizations that came to help with picking up all the various different pieces, you know. Um, so there was nothing, uh, by that time, everything of importance had been removed from the site. Uh, a reader wrote into us today asking if we thought, well, pointing out an observation of his own, that from the wreckage he's seen, footage of the wreckage and photos, the the wreckage seemed a bit strange in that it was extremely rusted slash you no. know, in a very, very advanced state of decay. You mean of the cockpit voice recorder? Or no, one, the one, wreckage one, of the plane, what was left of it. Well, uh, I read anything from, unusual about it? I don't think so. Uh, someone, someone wrote in saying that the images that they have produced of the actual black box, which is orange, um, that was found has signs of uh, it's badly damaged and it has, but it has signs of rust on it, which is a bit strange for something that was found that was found immediately, within hours immediately afterwards. So <clears throat> again, we talked about the idea of a switcheroo. You know how hard it is to get a uh, a black box from the manufacturer, even you know not just the the, the circuit board that contains the data inside, but the black box itself and. You know, beat it up and uh, let it rust get to an, make it look genuine. <laughs> or get an old one. Who knows? Whatever, who knows. But uh, I don't know about that. I mean, that's going a bit uh, too far into it. There's no way to prove one way or the other, but we don't need to. Um, but as far as the wreckage is concerned, yeah, I mean, the plane flew into the side of a mountain at uh, high speed, like 450 miles an hour. Can it go that speed that low? Yeah, yeah. it's probably it's probably at the upper limits of, of, of what it can do, but um, it was... You know, it was on. It was probably on fairly full throttle, all the way down. It's going quite fast, all the way down, and then apparently, according to the story, that it sped up. Someone sped it up uh, in the last, uh, you know, few seconds, kind of gunned the engines to really uh, ram it into the, the side of the mountain. And it's, you know, it's it's aluminum and very relatively soft metals. It's not a very the plane isn't a very sturdy structure. You know, it's meant to be relatively light um, so at that speed in the hard surface uh, you know it just crumples completely uh, and then and immediately the gasoline and uh, the fuel kerosene whatever ignites and uh, and you have a fireball I mean yeah I mean there's pictures of them actually testing um, test testing planes uh, on YouTube again uh, testing planes by flying them into kind of brick walls mm-hmm. and yeah as soon as they fly at high speed into a wall, I mean, they just squash like an accordion, and uh, and immediately thereafter, a fireball erupts, and you know, there's there's an explosion. I mean, it's setting fire to I don't know how many thousands of gallons of uh, yeah, the plane flam- flammable. The plane would have fuel. been pretty full of fuel. It wasn't long enough to take off. So you have a massive fireball, a massive explosion, and yeah, that most of the plane. I mean, not only obviously the explosion blows the plane to pieces and but the the actual impact just destroys the plane because uh, yeah. along with the actual explosion you have the the kinetic energy of the the energy of the plane flying at that speed and you know uh, meeting an immovable object what about this report of some of the fuselage being found at a different site yeah i think that might have been seed you know a bit of uh, diversionary tactics, uh, 
because there was also reports of uh, plane the plane having smoke or uh, an explosion and there being smoke seen from the plane before it mm. crashed and stuff. Um, that might have just uh, been the we noticed that in these in these kind of what are effectively false flag events. I'm not sure if you can call this a false flag, but certainly it's you know the truth of what happened is not uh, is not what they're saying happened. We notice that in these kind of events by these kinds of people, they very often seed the narrative uh, with little juicy morsels uh, for conspiracy theorists, mm. or they will start a conspiracy theory immediately afterwards just to distract and divert and to, and to get people going down the wrong the wrong they know there's a large ish element of us out there right. who well that's one of the well of, of them you mean of them them there's a lot I'm of, saying us of people who just don't believe stuff that they're told well, because they're told by authorities right that they question and so they they throw in some crumbs to maybe put people send people off in the wrong wrong direction or just to start the rumor mill going mm-hmm. essentially and give people something to work over you know yeah, people, were, most people most of these conspiracy theorists don't take that into consideration that they're being fed they themselves can be being fed uh, uh, lies and bullshit you know because they are part of the threat that right people would of course, figure yeah. things out and then well it's a general, the masses of ordinary people would actually listen to them right, but I, they need to be taken care of right I think there's a generalized uh, anxiety and concern one of the things that drives these people in positions of power is a fear some sense of a, a nebulous in the background I know I said they don't generally feel fear but it's maybe more like a pressure. They don't feel fear in a normal human way, but they feel a kind of pressure <clears throat> on them to to keep going and, and furthering the control and stuff. And I think one of the things that uh, produces that pressure on them is <clears throat> their awareness to whatever extent or their nebulous understanding of the possibility of people finding out what they do because they do know that what they do uh, would horrify the population and they would be strung up uh, not that they necessarily fear such an outcome because they don't tend not to understand the the, the results of their actions or, or care about what, what happens down the line. They just live for the moment and what they need to do and what they want to do. But I think there's a general sense amongst them that, um, that that's a big threat. You know, it could be a threat uh, in terms of their overall desire to control as many people as possible. The, 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 the possibility that <clears throat> that that control <clears throat> wouldn't work so well anymore or people would start to question uh, uh, in large numbers or that they might make a mistake or they might be found out is uh, something that yeah. uh, taxes them a little bit Yeah, I mean, we've, and drives them on to do more of the same. We, we've had a lot of anecdotal <clears throat> evidence uh, in the years of looking at 9-11 and everything around it that... Um, there are some people out there, pretty, pretty high profile in the alternative community, who, who have almost definitely planted agents. That's to say, they are conscious agents set up that way to be, and to be 9/11 truthing in quotes, set up that way in advance of the event. You know, they weren't like ad hoc tacked on no. when, when it happened. There was an awareness that there would be some spillover into a group of people or sets of people mm. who will start to look at this. We have got to be prepared to deal with them in advance of doing what we're going to do next. Mm. 
Yeah, they're smart. You know, yeah. these people are, are are smart and they are able to think things through in a quite a complex manner and you know, uh, um, seed certain uh, narratives uh, for a story in advance. I mean, so they're not. I mean, I suggest people watch videos of uh, of psychopaths. It's quite a disturbing thing to do, but um, I actually <laughs> I spent yesterday. Um, watching several interviews with uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy and this guy, uh, the Iceman. And uh, I don't know if it was just because I was feeling a bit strange yesterday, but it was, uh, it, it really, I felt a bit kind of infected, you know, uh, but I had to go out and play with the dogs afterwards and kind of, you know, do something normal after just listening to these people, you know. So the, the people that <clears throat> are the kind of clinical psychopaths who are the, the criminal psychopaths who get caught, uh, seeing, watching them and getting an understanding of how defective effectively they are in, in terms of their normal, in, in terms of normal human psychology, how depraved they are really and uh, abnormal only goes so far to understanding the people that we're talking about who are in positions of power because they seem to be a, a, of a different caliber of the same type of psychopath. They, they're much, like I said, they're much more high functioning. They're more aware and conscious, the more ambitious and smart, um, I think, you know, uh, particularly the ones at the, at the top of the pyramid, you know, you see a lot of psychopaths in, in politics and stuff in the U.S. who get caught doing things and, and, and get kicked out of Congress or, mm. or put in prison and stuff, you know, but they're examples of your common or garden type variety, you know, but then there's people above that who are, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but they're just... A better able to a different breed. Yeah, well, they are all a different breed, but they're these ones are are souped up in some way or other. You know, they're very capable, but kind of an evil mastermind type capable. You know, so they shouldn't be underestimated. But uh, yeah, so I reckon that. It's probably about time for a pop culture roundup. Indeed. And here's our old friend, Relic, to bring you all the, the gossip news. The gossip. Take it away, Relic. Well, hello, kids. It's time again for another edition of Pop Culture Roundup with your host, Relic here, tuning in from my cozy little log cabin, sequestered on the icy shores of Upper Lake Canada. You know, we get lots of wildlife up here in in my neck of the woods, all kinds of strange and interesting creatures. Like, instead of a, a fox... We have the Arctic fox, and instead of the hare, we have the Arctic hare, and and so on and so forth. In fact, you could name virtually any animal in the world and put an Arctic in front of it, and you probably find it here. <laughs> like, like the rare Arctic camel, for example. I just saw a herd of those crossing the back forty last week. And then there's the ever-popular Arctic kangaroo. Not a very shy of humans, this animal. 
Yesterday, I had one eating right out of my hand. And then there's the infamous Arctic crocodile. You got to be real careful of them, hiding under the snow, all quiet-like. I lost three cats one winter to one of those. Anyways, where was I? All right, Hollywood gossip. Well, let's see what the, the Webley verse has in store for us this week. Our top story is from the Hollywood Reporter. Everyone here at Behind the Headlines is quite excited at the news that Fox Studios has announced the revival of their classic science fiction TV program, The X-Files, for a six-part miniseries, including the original cast. Once again, we'll be able to follow the enigmatic adventures of Agents Skulder and Mully as they investigate strange and mysterious phenomenon in the universe. For example... How is it possible that a, an imbecile like George W. Bush could win two consecutive terms and... And Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. How much money did Hillary Clinton actually receive when she sold her soul to the devil? <laughs> and, and how does Sarah Palin manage to walk and talk without a functioning brain? And you can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska. We look forward to the premiere. In other news, Standard Online informs us that preeminent Scientologists and Hollywood power couple John Travolta and Tom Cruise have reportedly been engaged in a secret homosexual relationship for over 30 years. Well, surprise, surprise. Why don't they tell us something we didn't know? Like, the Pope is Catholic and the Earth revolves around the Sun. And while this isn't exactly breaking news, I can only imagine that the whole affair started when John Travolta came down with a case of Saturday night fever and then Tom Cruise made all the right moves, and <laughs> together they engaged in some risky business that could have been taken right out of a Pulp Fiction novel. And at the end, they both enjoyed a nice cocktail. Well, boys, needless to say, I hope you didn't forget to put some grease on that top gun. And whatever the case may be, I, for one, say kudos to the happy couple, as a 30-year relationship in Hollywood is as rare as a three-legged Sasquatch sighting or an honest politician. Now, if only these two mega-superstar lovers could find the courage to come out of that closet and finally admit to the world what everybody already knows. Everybody knows. story for the evening comes from Entertainment Online website, where Hollywood movie actor Sean Penn recently gave an interview on the Conan O'Brien talk show, 
where he claims that the Islamic terror pop supergroup ISIS was actually created by former President George Bush and former Vice President Dick Cheney. Now hold the phone, kids. This is outrageous. This this is it's unbelievable. This is absolutely scandalous. Never in my life have I heard a Hollywood celebrity actually tell the truth on public television. Oh. Who is this Sean Penn person? First, he punches out a paparazzi, and, and then he decides to divorce Madonna, and now he does this? In baseball parlance, that's what we might call a dazzling triple play. Sean Penn, you are now officially my most favorite Hollywood actor. Hats off to you, sir. Oh, no! Well, that's all for now, kids. Until next time, it's Relic here, warming my toes in front of a crackling fire and saying, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. So there you go. That was, um, that was the latest pop, uh, pop culture roundup from Relic from his winter wonderland up on the shores of Lake Canada in I still haven't located it on Google Maps. Well, it's not on Google Maps. It's oh. blocked out, actually, yeah, oh. for national security uh, reasons in Canada. Anyway, uh, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Um, thanks for listening, and thanks to our chatters, and we'll be back next week. And thanks to Alec, obviously. Don't forget to check out our health and wellness show on Monday nights, and obviously... The Truth Perspective next Saturday. Yeah. Until then, see ya. See you next week.